Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in The Jinx. Now, the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, everybody. Robert Evans here, and my novel, After the Revolution, is available for pre-order now from akpress.org. Now, if you go to akpress.org, you can find After the Revolution. Just Google akpress.org, After the Revolution. You'll find a list of participating indie bookstores selling my book. And if you pre-order now from either of these independent bookstores or from AK Press, you'll get a custom signed copy of the book, which I think is pretty cool. You can also pre-order it in physical or in Kindle form from Amazon or pretty much wherever books are sold. So please Google AK Press after the revolution um, or find an indie bookstore in your area and pre-order it. You'll get a signed copy and you'll make me very happy. So this is episode six. You know, we're, what, eight hours into talking about Mr. Kissinger? Oh, and, God. And, uh, yeah. We, I'd we've love really... to meet me from eight hours ago, my buddy. <laughs> it's like when Bill and Ted meet each other halfway through and they don't mm-hmm. know the journey they're about to go upon. Yeah. <laughs> buddy, buckle up. So the things, the thing that Kissinger gets the most credit for that we haven't mentioned, we've, we've talked about a bunch of the things that he gets credit for, is bringing guy. peace to the Middle East. Um, he does get credit for being that guy. Obviously, he did not do that but Hmm. he did play a significant role in stopping what had been a decades-long cycle of wars between israel and the arab nations around it now to call that bringing peace would be ignoring a tremendous amount of ongoing violence against the palestinian people but 
Kissinger did help ensure, like, you know how there were all these different, like, everyone would invade, yada, 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 there'd be a bunch of fighting. That doesn't really happen anymore, and Kissinger is part of why that doesn't happen anymore. Okay. The gist of it is that on October 6th, 1973, on Yom Kippur, um, Egypt and Syria launched a coordinated assault on Israel that for a time threatened the state's very existence. Kissinger had not spent much of his time working on Mideast-related stuff up to this point. This was partly because Nixon thought having a Jewish man negotiate with Arab countries would be a bad idea. Sure. Um, it was also because Kissinger was kind of buried in Vietnam stuff, right? But by October of 73, negotiations with uh, Hanoi had been concluded, U.S. forces had stepped back from an active role, and Kissinger had been awarded a Nobel Peace Prize with his Vietnamese counterpart, Lee Duc Tho. What? Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> what well, now i can't there's no counter argument absolutely no he he nailed it um what <laughs> i mean now, the nobel peace prize really doesn't i mean they must hit sometimes i'm just familiar with a lot of the no's though it seems mostly to be misses in my I experience mean, like yeah. when he got it's... that that's called the no yeah nobel peace prize. <laughs> and, and you know who felt that way gareth Lee Ducto, who was also awarded the I'm Nobel sure. Peace Prize it, wait, with Kissinger. Uh, I don't yeah. want mine. I don't want mine. Yeah. <laughs> he he literally was like, no, I'm not going to take it. The war isn't over yet. Like, yeah. all he's done, all we've done is negotiate the U.S. no longer murdering people on the scale they had been. And he was like, in charge of it. Yeah. And it, specifically, he was angry because right before the armistice was signed, in order to, like, try and force Hanoi to agree on some points, Kissinger orchestrated a massive nighttime bombing campaign on christmas of hanoi um they didn't Merry bomb christmas. on christmas day just the day before and a bunch of the days after but it gets called the christmas bombing we're campaign. worried we'll hit santa <laughs> i don't want that jolly blood on my hands <laughs> so lee doc toe is like i don't i'm not gonna take an award for peace with this guy yeah. fuck him yeah. <laughs> so kissinger accepted it alone oh my god <laughs> <laughs> he's such a cool dude he's such a cool dude um, wow more credit for me <laughs> i can't believe i'm the only one who got it this year i must be really good at this stuff so yeah he's like the conway kanye of the nobel peace prize yeah right right <laughs> right <laughs> sorry you did great but kissinger had the best war of all time of all time it would have been really funny if henry kissinger had like shoved taylor swift off stage Excuse me. Like, <laughs> you had a great war you did great with peace but come on you're talking about the goat here baby <laughs> So, by October of 73, Kissinger is free and clear and ready to get it on in the Middle East. And this actually went better than you might think. Weirdly enough, Henry Kissinger was probably one of the fairest negotiators the United States ever sent into that conflict. Hmm. In fact, he was more or less in constant tension with Israel because he would do stuff like try to halt arms shipments there. Like during the Yom Kippur War, right? Israel's on a back foot. They're in real danger of being overrun. They want U.S. weapons and like U.S. arms and a bunch more F-4 Phantom planes. And Nixon agrees to give them to him. But Kissinger's like, we're not giving them anything until they can arrange for commercial flights to ship the weapons to them. Because I don't want, I'm trying to negotiate with um, with Syria and Egypt, wow. and if they see U.S. military aircraft landing in um, Jerusalem uh, to give the Israelis weapons, that's going to fuck up my negotiations. Oh. So, like, he's actually really unpopular with a lot of folks in Israel because he does stuff like this. Um, and in fact, Kissinger's, and obviously, 
like every U.S. negotiator in this conflict, Kissinger is more on Israel's side than anyone. Right. But he's, it's probably fair to say he's less on Israel's side than any other negotiator we ever put in there, which yeah, is like weird. Like he's, fascinating. It yeah. sounds like he's the most progressive because, I mean, like, obviously we have, we could give a fuck now. Well, you know, he's not well, a Zionist, for one yeah. thing. He doesn't have, well, like, maybe, there's not a, you know, he's Jewish, but he's not yeah, really yeah. that, like... There, there is some amount of, like, as a Holocaust survivor, he believes strongly that, like, you know, Israel needs to exist. So he does have that going for him. Again, he eventually agrees to ship them weapons on U.S. planes after it becomes enough of an issue. But he, like... Still, is, that moment of principles, The though, fact huh? that there's, like, what any of that at all is yeah. weird. Yeah. yeah. Um, he probably like sitting- a... He probably had like a little Nixon on his shoulder who was like, I know you're just going to be a Jew about this. He was like, no, I will not. uh, I will not devil Nixon. It's weird how plugged in you are to how Nixon reacts to everything. (laughs) Exactly what goes on. the spirit president. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, man. So Kissinger's best relationship in the Middle East wound up being with Anwar Sadat, the president of Egypt. The two, like, were legitimately good buddies. They would kiss each other on the cheek. Like, they liked each other. I finally Um, found the one. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Meanwhile, Kissinger and Golda Meir, which was the leader of Israel, had a really contentious relationship. Um, At the end of the day, Kissinger, again, would always side with Israel on existential issues, but he wound up giving them a lot more shit than you might expect. Now, the fact that the U.S. eventually sends in arms to turns the war around for Israel, which allows them, their forces to deal decisive blows to Egyptian and Syrian militaries. Uh, but once Israel was out of kind of the, the period of most risk for them as a state, Kissinger starts to push back on them even harder. He's particularly enraged at the fact that they kept attacking while he was trying to negotiate a ceasefire. Um, and again, his main concern here, this is not because he just like wants to stop the bloodletting, it's really important to him to negotiate a peace and it be seen as Henry Kissinger brought peace to the right. Middle East. Right. So he's pissed that they're fucking over his negotiations. Yeah. And he cares more about his reputation than he does about Israeli military success. They're forgetting about the people of Kissinger. Yes, exactly. <laughs> the real chosen people. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so when Israeli forces surround the Egyptian Third Army and encircle it, violating a ceasefire, Kissinger is livid. Um, and he, he's particularly angry... We're not getting as much into this aspect of his beliefs, but his whole thing in this period, the reason he organ like as we talk about in our China episode, and this like three way diplomacy thing that he deals with with China and the Soviet Union, um, he wants what's called a balance of power. That's his whole thing. He's he gets a cre- he's a he's a big cold warrior. Obviously, he overthrows a lot of communist governments. But he's not one of these people who thinks we can eliminate communism. Instead, he really wants like this balance of power. And he wants a balance of power in the Middle East between Israel and her neighbors, too. And he's livid about, in part, that they violated the ceasefire. But he's also worried that, like, well, if the Israelis wipe out the Egyptian Third Army, that's going to mean Egypt is humiliated. And if Mm -hmm. they're humiliated, Sadat can't actually make peace. And there's going to be another war. And I want to try and stop the next war. Plus, we're BFFing so hard right now. Yeah, we're so good friends. But he is, like broadly on the right side of this right um yeah yeah over the course of several chaotic days he makes numerous trips between each of the belligerent nations in this war negotiating with their heads of state and one of his primary tactics is to mock whoever he'd just been talking to when he's in front of the next person <laughs> so like <laughs> we- <laughs> yeah i mean he is that guy he's an mc Yeah. When he's so when he's dealing with Hafez Assad or Anwar Sadat, this means talking shit about the Israelis and often Jewish people in general to get on their good side. 
Wow. So when Israel violates that ceasefire, he is heard to complain in a meeting, quote, if it were not for the accident of my birth, I would be anti-Semitic. Oh, my God. <laughs> wow. <laughs> On another occasion, he says, quote, and I need to remind you, this is a Holocaust survivor saying this. Any people who have been persecuted for 2,000 years must be doing something wrong. Oh, Jesus Christ. (laughs) He fucking said that. Wow. Holy shit, man. We are just just such fucking assholes. I have just seen this. Gosh, listen, I'm on fire. I'm just riffing right now. This is some good thing. Write, someone write this down. No, don't yeah. worry. I'm wiretapping myself. He kills at the clubs in Damascus. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. And yeah, he is actually, like, really popular with a, not all, because there are other, we have quotes from other, like, people who are, like, particularly other Egyptian military leaders under Sadat, who are like, well, Sadat's fallen for it. He's obviously just saying whatever he thinks will make us like him. Like, right. he doesn't, clearly, he can't believe this shit. He's just trying to, like, right. there are people who see through it, but he, he's able to trick the folks who matter, which is, in this case are Sadat and, and Hafez. Right. Um, so, all that aside, this period is, again, broadly speaking, the one where Kissinger does the most actual good. But it's worth noting that even when he's on the right side of things, I think negotiating an end to a war is generally the right thing to do when there's a war. Um, But even when he's on the right side of things, his ego plays a massive and often toxic role in how everything shakes out. See, while all this is going on, Nixon is barreling towards impeachment. And a big part of why he's constantly over there, like while all of the big milestones in the Watergate case hit, like when when Nixon is like ordering the cover up and shit and doing the things that will get him impeached, Kissinger's always away. Like he's mm-hmm. like very studiously, as so, soon as the story breaks, like I need to be overseas as much as fucking possible. <laughs> so is it possible he's competently trying to negotiate Middle East peace because he's trying to save his own ass and doesn't yeah. Yeah, that is literally what's going on. Because he's he's not a dumb man. He sees that Nixon is fucked. So he's he doesn't. He's like, well, I can't just be doing nothing. Yeah. Listen, why don't I actually try to make this work? I guess I'm in a lot of trouble domestically. Yeah, I mean that's it. Like he wants to. Because part of it is he doesn't want to be near Nixon because Nixon's toxic. And part of it is like, well, if if the last thing everyone remembers about Henry while Nixon is going down is that he ended war in the Middle East. I'm going to keep being secretary of state. You know, know? there's a friend of mine who had this theory when he was like, he said when, or it might even be a bit, I don't remember, but like when he's in like a ride share, he won't (laughs) talk. And then the last two minutes, he'll just take great interest. So he leaves on a real high note. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, he's kind of like distant and not really doing much. And then the last two minutes will be like, oh, that sounds great. Well, good luck with your family. And then, so that's kind of like, he's just trying to leave. like Yeah, leave on a high note. So the last thing he's going to try to do is actually decent Mm -hmm. after a bunch of bullshit. Yeah, when I I enter a party, I set off an IED at the start of it. So everyone's really like shaken up. But then at the end, I hand over a six pack of beer and write that. Right. means everybody's like hey, you know what? that was the guy who dropped the idea oh come on he's the six-pack guy in my opinion that's who that guy is <laughs> that, that is how henry kissinger handles yeah. everything <laughs> 
So yeah, now again, but but here here's the thing: the fact that like this is all existential for Henry, right? Ending the war in in between Israel and and her neighbors is like uh, he 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 knows he has to do this, or he's not going to keep his gig. Um, so not only is he trying to negotiate peace, but he can't let anyone else play a role in bringing peace to the Middle East, right? Because this is how, this is his job interview. And you know how Henry Kissinger treats job. You've seen what he'll do for a job interview, right? I don't, I, <laughs> name something he won't do to get a job. Yeah. I'd like to see that list. <laughs> So this becomes a problem when, while this is all going on, this Egyptian and Israeli general, you've got this massive encircled Egyptian army, the the Egyptian general in charge of that and the Israeli general, like, meet each other in the field between their armies and, like, sit down and start negotiating a ceasefire and figuring out how to pull, like, they start, like, talk wow. like people, like, it's one of these weird moments in military history where these guys are like, I think we can work something out. Hey, like, we don't need guy, to be doing this anymore. Who's running? <laughs> quiet, you guys, be quiet! <laughs> Shut up! Shoot a bit! <laughs> Kill them quick! So, Henry is enraged when he hears this happening, and he stands... <laughs> What? And he starts again. All these people who, like, in any other situation, neither like an Israeli general or an Egyptian general in the 1970s, not guys you would expect to be the voices yeah. of reason, but because his Kissinger's in yeah. the story, yeah. yeah. Oh um, my god. So he starts maneuvering <laughs> to make these guys shut the fuck up. Um, he sends a letter to the Israeli ambassador asking, what is Yarev, Yarev's the Israeli general, selling here? Tell him to stop. Suppose Yarev comes out a great hero on disengagement. What do you discuss on December 18th, which is the next round of negotiations? Oh, like, oh he, my he, I mean, God. He's I, such a... <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just what a heinous asshole. Mm -hmm. I'm, I, I mean, I feel like he could still tilt the credit towards him, but he's like, I want my fingerprint solely on yeah. this. I, I don't want to, like, get too into, like, what might have happened, because I'm not an expert on either Egyptian or Israeli military history. But you have to think, maybe it would have been good if, like, an Israeli general and an Egyptian general had, like, brought peace to the conflict. Probably. And, like, maybe that had, yeah, like, been part probably. of, like, the military legacy in the area. Might have been nice. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> you realize we're, like, we're staring down the barrel of a tragedy right now. <laughs> I might not be recognized as the one who did this. <laughs> <laughs> so, Kissinger, a biography, continues the story. Quote, At Kissinger's behest, both Sadat and Mayer reigned in their generals at the Kilometer 101 talks. That's like where this army is encircled. Okay. The Israeli ambassador, although a Kissinger partisan, felt that it was largely a matter of ego. Kissinger's view was that if any concessions were to be made, they should be made by him, Dinitz recalled. He was very upset when he found out that things were actually being settled by the generals at Kilometer 101. We had to make them stop. Ego was a weakness of his, but it was also the source of his greatness, which I might quibble I, uh, with. But. Ego <laughs> was a weakness is understating. What? Yes, I would. I would like to call it an airstrike. <laughs> can we? Can we kill both generals? I think we're going to need to find new generals. These guys yeah. are getting along way too well, and I didn't. I wasn't there. Listen, Dick. I know the Watergate stuff has you, but, but can we invade both countries? For sure. <laughs> Will you come play a camp? Come play camp. Yeah. <laughs> so, I to his 
sort of credit, though. The peace that Henry helped negotiate to end the Yom Kippur War would prove to be durable, and it set up diplomatic relations between Egypt and Israel for the next time. There's this very powerful moment when, like, Golda Meir, because, like, Sadat still can't talk directly to Israel. There's a whole, like, diplomatic thing going on. Right. But he tells Kissinger to tell her, like, I'm taking off my military uniform and I'm never going to wear it again, basically. Like, things do, like, this is a really, like, good move in a lot of ways obviously that you could say this also like paves the way for nobody ever coming to help the palestinians again which is worth noting but it does bring an end to this series of like constant wars um so yeah what an amazing risk to take though to be like you guys stop we'll do my version (laughs) we gotta do it my way way. (laughs) yeah the frank sinatra of middle east peace negotiations That is kind of the reputation he gets, because obviously this plays incredibly well for Americans. And so Nick, or Kissinger is seen as still this like massive hero, even while this is a big part of why he's so popular, even as the rest of the Edmund goes down in flames. Now, this inaugurates a period of what comes to be known as shuttle diplomacy. That's a, a term you'll hear associated with Kissinger all the time. And it's him fly all these different countries in the Middle East and in Africa, him flying from like capital to capital for weeks on end doing these negotiations where he's always the man in the center of things. Mm-hmm. Um, Henry actually kind of grew addicted to throwing himself in the middle of international crises and flying nonstop between capitals to do these negotiations. It was this and the popularity he earned from being seen as a peacemaker that guaranteed him to keep his job in Ford's cabinet. One of the few upsides to Kissinger's career prior to the 70s is that he hadn't really fucked with Africa to any appreciable degree. Now, this is not because Henry Kissinger would have an issue with fucking with Africa, but it is because the U.S., like, we didn't have a huge footprint in the continent until the 60s. You know, that's just not swamped right now. There's so much going on. So many countries to ruin. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, this is like him learning Spanish. He just never found yeah, the time. I, yeah, yeah. I look, I, a, maybe when I'm a little older and I get the chance, I can ruin Africa, but my God. So, um, yeah, the, the U.S. footprint in uh, Africa started up when the CIA, in like the early 60s, I think, when the CIA murdered or allowed other people to murder, it's a little unclear, Patrice Lumumba, the left-wing democratically elected leader of the Congo. The U.S. backed a right-wing general, well, e- even calling him, like, right and left are less useful terms in this, but we back a general called Joseph Mobutu, who proceeded to spend the next couple decades robbing the country blind. Uh, it seems like a pattern. Yeah, it happened. It's it's weird that it keeps happening all the time. Um, while there was other U.S. fuckery in Africa throughout the 60s and early 70s, it stayed at a fairly low ebb until April of 1975 when Saigon fell to North Vietnam, now known as just Vietnam. Mm-hmm. 1975 was known by some in the media as the Year of Intelligence, not because any particularly good decisions were being made, but because Congress was investigating the presidency over Watergate, and there was this big flood of public questions about clandestine foreign actions carried out under the ages of Cold War politics. A lot of the stuff we were talking about in episodes like 2, 3, and 4 had started to leak by this point, and so people are like, there's this big national discussion about like, well, what the... F- what should we be doing all the should we have like a cia like should we maybe and there are like the cia gets like I, the there's a reforming of the cia that occurs in this oh, that period always works. you can and it yeah you can question the degree to which it mattered and it helped. um yeah it may have made them less good at doing the bad things that they did um but not for lack of trying hard, hard to imagine 
It's the the reform in the CIA is the difference between overthrowing Salvador Allende and those like U.S. guys pissing themselves in Venezuela after getting like arrested by fishermen. Right. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> wow. Um. For Henry Kissinger, though, the year of intelligence was a year where he, he spent trying to reorient the United States towards a new anti-communist conflict. His target this time was the nation of Angola. Now, Angola is a mid-sized African nation located on the southwest coast of the continent, directly under the Congo and directly above Namibia. It's close enough to South Africa to get fucked with, but not so close that they can just send troops right over the border, you know, mm -hmm. which is a better place to be than directly bordering South Africa in this period. In 1961, the people there decided to have themselves a good old-fashioned war of independence, which lasted 13 years, killed tens of thousands of people, and only ended when a coup overthrew the dictator of Portugal. Now, this coup was, by the way, very weird. Most sources will describe it as a left-wing coup against the dictator. The reality is a lot more muddled. The guy who winds up in charge of Portugal on paper is a monocle-wearing general um, who's like a I, real... I love him already. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm in. I'm and in. he's not really he's... leftist, but uh, the powers behind him are some very left-wing army officers. They form a new democratic government, which includes several elected communist leaders. So Portugal has, like, elected communist deputies now. Okay. Henry Kissinger flips the fuck out at this. He is certain the country will fall to Soviet influence. Interestingly, like, this detente he's worked at with the Soviets, a big part of it is that, this idea that, like, well, the Soviets have their sphere of influence in the East, and we have, like, the West has its sphere of influence in Western Europe, and... The Soviets kind of hold to that here because they don't get involved in Portugal. They don't like try to make push things further in their direction. Henry is uh, like convinced they're going to and is absolutely wrong. Because, he got paranoia from Nixon. He was like, well, yeah, yeah. Um, Portugal eventually elects other people. Like, again, the government stays fairly left wing by his standards. But like it does not, as you might notice, it does not join the Iron Curtain, you know? Yeah, right. <laughs> like oh. it's, yeah. <laughs> Kissinger is just like, there's, we have some quotes from him. He's absolutely certain that like they're about to go full Stalinist. Um, because again, he's wrong about most things, actually. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he does not have a good understanding of like what's going to happen anywhere. No, it's just almost at this point he's hung around so long that you're kind yeah. of just like, I guess he must. I mean, he won a Nobel yeah. Peace Prize. Like, you're like, he must know something. You, I think it's worth looking at, like, what happens. Like, Henry's expectations for what's going to happen in Portugal versus what happens. And then think back to Chile, where, like, Henry's right. like, oh, Allende is going to lead to, they're going to go full communist and yeah. it's going to be, you know. No, maybe if Allende had stayed in power, uh, there just wouldn't have been a dictator and things would have been fine. And, and they would have had a lot less problems and, than and they And let's see the communist version on play out. How many people yeah. die in the communist version? Yeah, uh, probably the, less. The puppets that we put in power are not like these amazing like peacekeepers. It's just it's just like we every yeah. we're like the Midas of genocides. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so the biggest international result of the coup is that the new Portuguese government had no stomach for colonies, right? Uh, they negotiate a treaty with the three largest militant groups in Angola in 75. Uh, these were the FNLA, the MPLA and UNITA. Um, the non-acronym names of all these groups are in French. I am. I'm not. I'm not even going to try. Dave. That. Dave. Like, you can do it. Dave has a <laughs> absolutely <laughs> not. <laughs> um, I, what you need to know is that the MPLA were Marxists, right? Um, kind of Marxists. They were formed. At least the, the organization had been formed by members of Angola's intelligentsia who were Marxist, and Marxism had like a big influence on the MPLA. Um, unfortunately, like yeah. 
meanwhile, like kind of, so that's one faction. The FNLA and Unita are, are generally described as being right-wing groups, but this is one of those things where like grafting Western political terms onto the civil war in Angola right. mm -hmm. does not work great. Um, right. All of these groups, even the ostensibly Marxist MPLA, are very tribal in origin. And by that, I mean like they are based on specific tribal grievances and tribal like like arguments, right, that are going on in the region, um, as opposed to like being clearly like, well, we're pro-communist, we're anti-communist, like that's really less of what's going on. We're getting shirts uh, made. Right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, for an example of how useless a strict ideological lens is here, Unita was initially very left-wing in its messaging, attacking the United States as, quote, the notorious agents of imperialism. Unita's sure. fighters were literally trained by North Korean soldiers. But by uh. the end of the civil war in Angola, they had been receiving arms from the Reagan administration for uh. years, <laughs> brokered via their paid representative, Paul Manafort. Oh my God, so, what the oh, hell? That's yes. the kind of where this is where like United starts up being like we're going to end American imperialism and by the end they're like Paul Manafort get us weapons you, if you're going to party get next to this Manafort yeah. character he is a good time and yeah for just like to show you how weird this is technically in the Angolan civil war Paul Manafort and North Korea are on the same side at <laughs> least I feel like Paul Manafort's 250 years old yeah. um yeah I mean, and by the end, it is fair to say that, like, by the end of the Civil War, Unita's, like, leader, Jonas Savimbi, is calling himself an anti-communist. That's his messaging. But he's less about anti-communism than, again, there's specific local grievances he has with the MPLA. And, like, that's more why they're fighting than that he, like, believes strongly in anti-communism. He, he just, just knows of, that's how you get weapons. Right, you know? okay, that's yeah. what, right. He's just yeah. speaking the language, right. Yeah, and when North Korea is training his guys, he's not... Uh, into Juche, you right. know, he's, he's like, he to wants the dudes to train his guys. Yeah, yeah, right. Now, the FNLA is led by a guy named, and that's the other usually called a right-wing faction, is led by a guy named Holden Roberto, who used to work with Savimbi before Savimbi formed Unita. I know this is a very complicated conflict, I'm sorry. Um, they're generally described as, like, right-wing, and they did receive aid from the CIA, so that would, like, okay, yeah, definitely right-wing getting yep. aid from the CIA. They also got military aid from China, Romania, India, Algeria, Zaire, the AFL-CIO, and the Ford Foundation, or at least aid of some sort. They're so, like, again, like, the like, sides here are just fucking baffling. They're like the Tinder <laughs> swindler. They're just, yeah. like, working every side. Yeah, China, the CIA, and the AFL-CIO <laughs> I mean, shaking yeah. hands over uh, backing yeah, the FNLA. Agreement. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like Big Brother. Wait, you guys here too? I didn't know <laughs> yeah. you were here. This is amazing. Uh, well, the Ford minute. Foundation. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, well. <laughs> The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Countless crazy tournaments you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Constantly changing challenges like money sprees or treasure hunts that keep it fresh with new wild minigames. Timed events offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums, delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches, unique playing pieces, and so much more. The verdict is in with Monopoly Go. There's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now for free on the App Store and Google Play. Bean Dad. The Dress. 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, 
you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in The Jinx. Now, the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The MPLA, which these, again, are the kind of Marxist guys, and if you're uh, of the three factions, they are the ones who most do believe in, like, a political thing that, like, we would recognize in terms of, like, left-right sides. They are partly armed by the Soviet Union, which should not be surprising, but most of their military aid comes from Cuba. And we're not really going to get into it, but it's worth noting, like, how substantial Cuban aid is to the MPLA. Cuba starts sending soldiers to Angola in November of 75, and by 1988, they had more than 55,000 soldiers in the country. Wow. And, like, that's a trek. I don't know if you guys know this, but Cuba yeah, and the yeah. west coast of Africa, not super close. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it's, it's a, a bit walk. of a jaunt. Yeah. <laughs> and that's also a long involvement. You know, they're in there more than a decade. Um, there's a lot of commitment here. So yeah. as is generally the case. It's actually Cuba now, to be yeah. fair. So. <laughs> as is generally the case, all of the communists were not in agreement about Angola. The People's Republic of China did not particularly care about like a left-wing struggle in Angola. They wanted to keep Soviet power on, at bay on a continent where they were starting to do some business themselves. So China and the U.S. worked together to support the FNLA and UNITA. This is exactly the sort of thing Kissinger had been going for when he pushed to connect the U.S. diplomat to China. I want to quote now from a write-up by Maria Gouda of Wilfrid Laurier University. Quote, 
This was part of Kissinger's grand strategy of triangular diplomacy. Triangular diplomacy was essentially the U.S. exploiting the relationship between communist China and the Soviet Union to create a three-way detente between the countries, with the U.S. at the helm. Kissinger was not pushing for covert operations through the CIA in order to elevate American standing in China, because Nixon and Kissinger were orchestrating something larger. This was to use China as a counterweight against the Soviets. Kissinger's emphasis on triangular diplomacy caused him to view regional conflict in terms of involvement on the Chinese and the Soviets, not in terms of a local struggle. So he very much sees this as a battleground between different ideologies. But anyone who knows anything about the Angola Civil War knows that, like, no, that's not really what's going on. Like, everyone is, like, everyone is in here, and it is certainly not, like, about what kind of political shit individual parties believe. Um, yeah. Yeah, the side, you can't graft these easily onto, like, a Western axis. But as Isaacson writes, Angola became, quote, a vivid example of Kissinger's tendency to see complex local struggles in an East-West context. <laughs> in all respect to Kissinger, wrote Jonathan Quitney in his study of the Angolan War, one really has to question the sanity of someone who looks at an ancient tribal dispute over control of distant coffee fields and sees it as a Soviet threat to the security of the United States. <laughs> I mean, what a guy. Yeah. <laughs> to be able to, it's like, I mean... It's also, I mean, it's it's so, again, I mean, the ego on this fucking dude mm -hmm. to be able to just go into thing, co massive conflicts, have no clue, and make it that binary and think that he's doing anything. I, I mean, he's just, he's just so emboldened. Yeah, he's emboldened. He just like, he's so arrogant that he's like, yeah. well... Would I you guys do me a favor? Could some of you wear red shirts and some of you wear blue so we could kind of stuff? Let's do shirt skins, huh? Yeah, I don't need to, like, I, Henry Kissinger, don't need to, like, understand the actual dimensions of why these sides are fighting. Yeah. I can just assume that it graphs onto every other conflict I've ever cared about. Yeah, knowledge is weakness. Yeah. yeah. And it, this is like, he's not the only American to be arrogant in this specific way about a conflict in Africa. But right? he's the last. <laughs> he's the last one. He would be the last, the thank last. God. He's the last. Since then. So CIA funding for uh, UNITA and the FNLA was initially quite low, but Kissinger pushed for an escalation, and soon the agency had poured $22 million in covert support for both of these groups. Kissinger felt they were thinking small, though. He believed that after suffering a public defeat in Vietnam, U.S. foreign policy needed a comeback, and oh, Angola yeah. was... Yeah, baby! Yeah. Come back. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. Yeah. And what a better place than Angola everybody cares. <laughs> yeah, Every America's like, what are Everyone's doing in plugged in. You're going to love my new stuff. <laughs> mm -hmm. The problem with Vietnam is that it was too distant from American concerns. That's Angola! It. That's it. That's the problem. <laughs> Now, he, yeah, so he believes that, like, Angola is going to be our fucking comeback tour. It's the equivalent of, I don't know, <sighs> one, one of the times uh, Elton John did a, did a, did a farewell yeah. tour, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah something, yeah. something like that. He's on his night. Yeah. There's a lot of similarities between Henry Kissinger and Elton John's musical career. <laughs> yeah. Bombing and the Jets. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, actually, Tiny Dancer, that song is about uh is right. about henry kissinger yeah he is the <laughs> tiny dancer um he's he is he is a little guy so yeah uh kissinger wants to prove that the united states is still a global power and he also wants to prove that henry kissinger has like is still a secretary of state with some teeth oh you know God. he's just like seated a bunch to the fucking in these negotiations with vietnam he's we need kind to of bring peace of mind to henry kissinger yeah he is like, everyone is going to see Vietnam as an L for me. 
so I need a win, baby. So, yeah, you could kind of see his attitude in Angola as, like, the powerful sociopath version of buying a sports car to impress, like, 20-year-olds. Right. Like, when you're, you know, an old man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. He's in his <laughs> midlife war crisis. And the people around Kissinger are a lot less bullish about escalating involvement in Angola. Uh, and in fact, this includes like the fucking CIA. But they had really big shoes to fill, to be fair. Yeah, <laughs> yeah they're just like, we don't want any part of this He's right like, now. Wow, you guys are really negative. <laughs> you guys, it's Angola! It's <laughs> Angola! Where's the wind? <laughs> <laughs> Gotta be a fucking hole in one, baby! <laughs> in June of 75, Kissinger holds a meeting with President Ford, the Defense Secretary, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and the head of the CIA. They discuss the invasion of Angola, and while most of that meeting is still classified, we know Kissinger urged what he called a diplomatic offensive. Quote, if we appeal to the Soviets to not be active, it will be a sign of weakness. He played on stereotypes of Africa as mysterious and wild, claiming it is an area where no one can be sure of its judgments. Next, Gouda writes, quote, Revealing his talent for manipulation, Kissinger used daunting and dramatic language to illustrate the situation in Angola as he saw it. By giving the impression that there was no way to tell how the Angolan civil war would play out, Kissinger pushed forward the idea that the U.S. had better get involved in Angola through tangible or covert means before it was too late. The U.S., through the CIA, needed to support the FNLA and UNITA to, to it prevent the dominance of the Soviet-backed MPLA. This view wholly disregards the idea that the Angolan civil war was indeed that, a civil war. Kissinger was positioned Angola in a wider East versus West context. Oh my goodness, you got Biggie, you got Tupac, these guys. <laughs> I mean, the, only the United States can want to be, in, like, only the United States can be sold on getting involved in a conflict where he's like, we have no clue what's going on, so we gotta get our hats <laughs> We're gonna really real throw our dicks in this we one. Really, come on, guys, let's get moving. It could be crazy. And this is one where, like, the U.S. actually doesn't really want to get involved. Like, this Kissinger is the one pulling everyone else in here. He's a marketing now, wizard. Yeah. And, and based on his urgings, the CIA comes up with a plan called IA Feature. Um, it was a covert para paramilitary operation in which U.S. military advisors and special forces would be sent to Angola in a manner basically identical to how U.S. involvement in Vietnam started. Okay. Kissinger's literally like, let's do that again, baby. Yeah, uh, let's see. It go goes pretty good when we do it. <laughs> this this is how I get to bomb Namibia. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> That's on my vision board. <laughs> he has dreams of flattening the Congo. Um, oh, I I woke up, I thought that I had done it. Now, despite the fact that the CIA did come up with this plan at his behest, there's intense resistance within the agency, a lot of the, whom think Kissinger has lost his fucking mind. Has lost. And thus, CIA Director William Colby joins our pantheon of bad guys who seem reasonable because Henry Kissinger is involved. Right. <laughs> so Jesus Colby is like pretty rattled by how Vietnam ended. Um, and also by the fact that there's all these congressional inquiries into, like, the CIA doing a bunch of other terrible shit, right? They're actively being investigated right now. Right. So this isn't Colby being a good guy. This is Colby being like, oh, I don't want to drive when I've got, you know, shit in the car, basically, right? right? Yeah. Like, I'm holding you know, right now. You know what? Honestly, any, any other time, I'm just fucking Angola mm -hmm. like crazy. Like, I'm just mm -hmm. fucking going nuts. But it's just not the right time. We got a right, lot of people right looking now? at us. Yeah. He's the guy who's like... He's like, Kissinger's like on a casino floor and he's been cheating and like the security's <laughs> gathered and they're whispering and pointing at him. He notices and he's still playing. Yeah, he keeps going. <laughs> he's going to let it ride say? on black one more time. How many times yeah. do I have to say hit me? <laughs> 
So the 40 committee, which again, Kissinger heads, approves IA feature. But William Colby is like, okay, but I'm going to insist we actually go to Congress to have the funds appropriated Who's for this Congre secret option. Oh, that branch? Those guys? What? <laughs> Are they still here? <laughs> oh my God. You are old fashioned, Colby. So while Kissinger argues for his covert operators, South Africa sends troops in to support the FNLA and UNITA, who had again originally been trained by North Korea. So there's FNLA troops who receive training from both South Africa and North Korea. Jesus. This is just a very weird war. So China has the reaction we're all having and is like, you know what? This is too messy for me. I, I, I don't even need this right now. Like I got other shit going on. Right. And they kind of bounce from the situation. Okay. Okay. <laughs> the Soviets and the Cubans, though, extend more aid to the MPLA, who win the war handily and ex install themselves in the capital, Luanda, by the end of 1975. So a few weeks after this, the CIA holds an interagency working group meeting with Kissinger to discuss how to ask Congress to send in U.S. advisors. And like at this point, the war is lost. And there's Kissinger's like, no, we got to get some guys in there. Come on, guys. Um, <laughs> no one else wants this, right? They're all, everyone else is like, this seems like way more of a hassle. He's than showing we, up to the party okay. at like 2.45 a.m. <laughs> Come on, let's keep going. Let's yeah. do shots. What do you mean yeah. the keg stabbed? <laughs> yeah, the CIA is already puking from how much they've had to drink in <laughs> Vietnam and Come Chile on. and shit. Who wants to do just... tequilas? Come on, I brought absinthe. Let's go. <laughs> Poopers. So Kissinger, or so yeah, they, they have this meeting. Um, and like, so Kissinger has a meeting with uh one of the like a guy in this with this a bunch of people and then like they hold a separate meeting afterwards with the CIA mm -hmm. um about what Kissinger had said so like so, so they're so basically the side meetings on Kissinger now yeah so basically <laughs> they present Kissinger with a report on like what would have to be done to send U.S. advisors into Angola and Kissinger reads the report and rather than giving a yes or a no he grunts and walks out of his office wow. so after this all of these CIA guys have to sit down and decide like what does Henry Kissinger grunting mean we've bought like in was this a yes or a no this yeah, guy is really good at deciphering <laughs> what Henry grunts mean well gentlemen it was a pretty long grunt which is never good. <laughs> Uh, he, it's a sigh grunt, which for Henry means he's a little agitated. <laughs> I'm going to quote about ta writing about this meeting, Kissinger, a biography by Walter Isaacson. Everyone found this rather disconcerting, especially since Kissinger was heading off for Beijing. Well, someone asked, was it a positive grunt or a negative grunt? Mokahi paused. <laughs> it was just a grunt, he explained. Like, oomph. I mean, mm. it didn't go up or down. Stockwell, the agent in charge, marveled as a group of somber <laughs> officials supervising the nation's only extant war, sat around a table trying to decipher a Kissinger grunt. Mulcahy pr provided his imitation of the grunt once again, emphasizing its flatness. It Someone else at the flat. other end of the table tried it. There were a few experiments <laughs> contrasting positive grunts with the voice rising, then a negative one with the voice falling. Different people attempted it. Well, asked the CIA officer who was chairing the meeting, do we proceed with the advisors? Mulcahy scowled and puffed on his pipe. We'd better not, he finally said, trying to decipher his boss's mind. Kissinger just decided not to send Americans into the Sinai. There were a lot of nods. The request for advisors was shelved. It was an amazing way to run a war, Mulcahy said years later as he recalled the incident. Oh, yeah. By the way, this is they accidentally wrote a home improvement script at the end of this. <laughs> yes! 
is actually where the, the pilot Genesis, to that show came from. Of, of, to, to the Tool Man Taylor. It was, it was like, uh, no, no, it was like, yeah. Uh, 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 okay, I like that. That sounds a little more positive. Yeah. It's just like, what a moment for the United States. Well, All these I mean, fucking spooks with blood on their hands being yeah. like, well, let's, was it like, uh, or like, uh, you know? I, I mean, because you do, at least at some point in your existence, for the most part, you do believe that when someone is saying the Central Intelligence Agency, that it is really like working yeah. on intelligence and, ga and, and is intelligent and is a body that is actually you know processing information that potentially you don't have access to and instead they're just sitting around a fucking table going like do the grunt again jim yeah it do really, the grunt it, again it, it reveals and this is i think where a lot of folks on the left kind of mix up viewing the cia as like hyper competent yeah. and it's where a lot of people everywhere fuck up it, viewing kissinger as hyper competent like yeah. no they have a lot of power and they use it badly but like at the end of the day kissinger doesn't have the balls to like say yes or no on something and so he grunts and then all of these fucking again bloody-handed monsters spend an entire meeting like repeating the grunt and trying to figure uh -huh. out if it means yes or no like, and and there's no like it's so unchecked i mean yeah. like there you there and it's it is still is that it but it's just there's nobody there to be like hey this is fucking nuts yeah instead they're like do the grunt again. Try the grunt again. <laughs> yes or no? Now, da ah. Dan had the best grunt. D Dan, do it again, because I want to play it slow for everyone. <laughs> That's yeah, a maybe to me, bro. It's, it's <laughs> I, I, while I think it sounds ambivalent, having known Henry for a little while, he's pissed. <laughs> so the CIA's request for another $28 million in funding and the discussion of sending in advisors was again leaked to Seymour Hirsch. Congress cut off all aid. Uh, he, obviously, he puts out an article about it. Congress right. cuts off aid to Angola as a result of this. Kissinger does not get his way, but the CIA money he'd already funneled into Unita helped the group stay alive. The Angolan Civil War did not officially end until 2002. Although, again, this is one of those things. <laughs> this is sorry. a really nasty civil war. It lasts a ridiculous <laughs> amount of time. Kissinger gets a lot of the blame, but we should also note that, like, Paul Manafort is much more on this. Like, he is the guy, Manafort's the guy who brings Savimbi to D.C. and gets Reagan to send a fuckload of weapons over to, like, really escalate things. Um, thank God for Reagan. Yeah, thank God for Reagan. Uh -huh. But it, it is amazing that this fucking goes on until 2002. I, I crazy. That's insane. Yeah. I mean, uh, what a legacy. Mm-hmm. What a legacy. So... I have teased y'all that Kissinger has a Rhodesia connection. Um, and yet again, the funniest thing about this is that it's one of the least fucked up things he's ever involved in. But the story is kind of funny, so I'm going to tell it anyway. Okay. So, in Rhodesia, you've got this country where about 8% of the population at the height of like white population in Rhodesia, about 8% of them are white, but they hold effectively 100% of the political power. This obviously <laughs> is not something a lot of the black people living there like. Sure. <laughs> For reasons sure. I don't think I need to explain. No. So some of them decide to fight back, and there's a number of rebel groups, and soon in an ugly insurgent war between the Rhodesian government, which, by the way, is an international pariah, right? They're, like, actually not supposed to exist, basically. Um, so no one can legally sell them arms, so everything has to get, like, smuggled through South Africa, and the Soldier of Fortune magazine winds up sending a bunch of fighters over. William F. Buckley Jr., or William F. Buckley raises money for them. Oh, yada, yada, God. yada. Very nasty war. We've talked about it in other episodes. The GoFundMe um, war. Yeah, it is It is a GoFundMe war. 
So by the time Kissinger is in office, the white minority government of Rhodesia has spent years locked into the losing side of a grinding insurgent campaign. The international community widely condemns Rhodesia as an apartheid state, uh, and there's a bunch of arms embargoes. Um, and in fact, pretty much everyone hates Rhodesia except for South Africa and the U.S. right wing, who hmm. see the Rhodes as anti-communist crusaders. Sure. Kissinger was locked into an awkward position here. He wanted to negotiate an end to the fighting and an end to the white supremacist government of Rhodesia, but he also doesn't want to piss off his right wing base too much. You know, this sure. is like a really messy no, I mean, situation again, for Henry. A, yeah, of course. So Tough. policy towards Rhodesia in the Nixon years, um, there's a plan Nixon approved for South Africa in 1969 that is like U.S. policy in Rhodesia for nearly a decade. And it is literally called, I am sorry for saying this, but Nixon calls U.S. plans like the U.S. stance towards Rhodesia, quote, the tar baby option. Oh, my okay. I got God. God. <laughs> See you guys later. Yes, Thanks out. for uh, having me on the podcast. Oh, my God. Oh, at Fucking least there's Nixon. no... I mean, at least there's no stream of white supremacy through American power. No, this was the one time. It's like... I can't believe the guy fucking recorded himself for yeah, like <laughs> this is not just recorded himself. This isn't just like Nixon saying a slur in a conversation with his buds. No, yeah, this title, is official title U.S. Pitch. government yeah. policy. Yeah, pitches. Yeah, we write this out places. Um, Someone wrote God it down. It was like, I'll, okay, I'll, I'll hand it in if you're sure, Mr. President. Well, it seems pretty good to me. And this is this is not just towards Rhodesia. This is towards all of like South Africa too. The, these like white minority governments in Africa. And the premise is that quote, the whites are here to stay, and the only way that constructive change can come is through them. So I mean, oh it's so, uh, and it really hasn't changed that much. We just have fancier titles. Yeah, we're, we we don't put the slurs right in the title. Anymore. Yeah, no, yeah. we don't record the president and we don't put the slurs in the title. So the policy is sold to American liberals and moderates by basically saying the only way to liberate black Africans is to improve their economic outcomes through trade. And that means dealing with the white governments, right? Uh, because we're just, yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's really bleak. It's we really just bleak. changed it to tech. <laughs> We've just changed yeah. it to tech, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> We would maintain, the document declared, public opposition to racial repression, but relax political isolation and economic restrictions on the white states. I mean, it's fucking crazy. Like, I, you know, the problem here is that people don't like the 8% white people that run the entire fucking place. It's one of those, we, we continue and we'll always have debates over like sanctions and like when they're good and bad ideas. Yeah. But the argument here is that like we can't sanction South Africa and Rhodesia because it'll hurt black people. And the degree to which that's a lie is that like, well, you're saying we have to start selling them fucking weapons so that they can oppress black people in order to improve economic <laughs> outcomes for black people. Right. And perhaps that's fucking insane. Right. You know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's a little more nuanced than that, by not by a lot. So, not much. Not much. Yeah. To his credit, when Nixon is out and Ford is in, Kissinger kills the racial slur option. And he authors a new plan, one that is a lot better and that is actually focused on spirited opposition to white minority rule in Rhodesia. Kissinger gives a big speech in Lusaka that immediately enrages the right wing of the Republican Party. Basically, he's like, our plan, like under Ford, we want to bring an end to the government in Rhodesia. Like this government cannot <laughs> and the be allowed. Right to wing is to like exist. unbelievable. Yes, Ronald Reagan. <laughs> Ronald over seven percent of the populace. <laughs> you can't disenfranchise seven percent of Rhodesia. Have you seen the color of their goddamn skin? <laughs> that is essentially what Ronald Reagan says. 
Um, uh, he denounces Kissinger's plan as undercutting the possibility of a, quote, just an orderly settlement and argues that it will provoke a massacre of white people. Boy, so, I mean, you want to have a head popping moment. Try to find yeah. a good guy in a Reagan Kissinger debate. It is. <laughs> it is an amazing fight. Uh, it's just like, well, yeah, well. I we hate should, everyone involved in this. We should <laughs> yeah. pay more attention to the white people. I think we need to be careful. I feel like you're both conning me into something. Mm-hmm. I feel yeah. like you guys are good cop, bad copping, and you're working for the same outcome. Look, Henry, I'm not 100% sure why I think you're wrong in this, but you must be. Yeah. The other guy's got to be wrong, too, though, so, so I don't really know what to do I here. I don't trust Reagan and hate him, but Kissinger, you're the worst person on the planet. <laughs> So I'm in what I'd call a bit of a pickle. Yeah. This is a doozy of an issue. I'm going to need to go in the other room and do some grunting. Yeah. So, he, yeah, what's happening here is that Kissinger is trying to wrench U.S. government policy in Africa away from supporting explicitly racist regimes in Africa and Reagan <laughs> because and the he's right like wing trying under to Reagan. Like, yeah. He's trying to get like into a country club or something. There's got to be some yeah, angle well, of... It, it, I mean, obviously, it's the same reason he does anything, right? He wants he, to be seen as being the guy who negotiates right. the, into these big issues. And he's yes. trying to... I think he recognizes by this point that like, well, Republicans aren't going to stay in power forever, but I, Henry Kissinger, want to have a shot at, right. at being in power still. And maybe if I, if I get rid of this bad government in Rhodesia... People will be like, Henry K, let's give him a gig, you know? Right. Like, he accidentally stumbles into yes. the proper outcome because personally he wants to end it. And so he sees the way to end it is actually the the way that's good. It's like, the it's rare, not- we're, we're lining up Henry's personal interests with a prudent solution. And yeah. that, happened, that eclipse is very rare. Yeah, it's he's like a guy who like, stops a home invader from mo- murdering a family but but it, but it's later be- found out that it's because he was hitting on a 15 year old girl like he was trying to flirt with their daughter and stuff like it's, right. it's like right. that sort of situation where right. it's like well good i guess like he stops yeah. a robbery because mm-hmm. he was peeping through a window that he fell through <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> yeah it is it is hard to find the moral lesson to right. take out of this right. um so, yeah, um, obviously the Reagan right loses their minds over what Kissinger's doing here. Pat Buchanan, a former Nixon speechwriter, oh, writes in a column, quote, It is too early to determine if Secretary of State Henry Kissinger's safari through black Africa Ugh. did greater damage to U.S. policy interests or to President Ford's hopes in the remaining primaries. <laughs> I mean, again, I like I, you just it needs to stop where like this this never ending. What does it do to your reelection chances? Shit. Mm-hmm. It's like we, we are so conditioned to that being how we operate and do everything as opposed to actually just trying to do the thing that does long term good. And well, why would you do the thing that is long-term good, is my uh, question, Gareth? Exactly. Yeah, you're right, you're exactly. right. Uh, I, I mean, it's true, but it's, I, like, I don't know, it's just, it's a foregone conclusion now that everything is viewed through the prism of, what does it do to the poll numbers? Can I just say, take off your masks? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> so, Kissinger did not achieve a tremendous amount in Rhodesia while he was Secretary of State. He got Ian Ian Smith, who's the the leader of Rhodesia, to agree to a two-year 
turnover from minority rule to an actual democracy. But the way he did this was by assuring Smith that black moderates had agreed that during the turnover, whites would remain in control of the military and police. Feels, this was a lie. The it, black people in Rhodesia, like the like the, the the black moderates in Rhodesia, had never agreed to this. He's just lying uh, to Smith to get him to agree to this. Um, awesome. It also feels whole, like anytime there's yeah. like a two year deal mm -hmm. that you're like, that's just your way of like letting it sort of settle so that you can pushing you the fuckery. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And it's, the story of the negotiations is classic Kissinger. He's telling everyone what they want to hear and then kind of weaseling his way into getting people to sign things that make him look good. This write up from the New York Times sums it up well. Mr. Smith has said he agrees to the five-point plan he made in public because he had received assurances from Mr. Kissinger that the black leaders had accepted the whole package, including Mr. Smith's addition on, white on the white ministers. In his view, either the blacks have reneged or Mr. Kissinger misled him. The blacks, such as President Julius Nyerere of Tanzania, insist that they did not give their approval to the details of the five-point plan, only to the general thrust of majority rule in two years, leaving it to Britain to work out details later with black and white Rhodesians. Oh they say they would have rejected the proposal for white ministers. Mr. Kissinger and his aides have been evasive. On October 24th, Mr. Mr. Kissinger said on television that, I think everybody is telling the truth. Wow! <laughs> <laughs> What an incredible guy. <laughs> wow. I that mean, is the best. That is the best bullshit statement I've ever it's, fucking it's heard. It's so much better than I believe I'm not sure or I don't or everyone's know. Everyone's lying. It's awesome. I think who is, everyone who is, is the bad guy in Rhodesia? Nobody. Nobody. <laughs> I think everybody's everybody really, be really good. Everyone's really Why? cool. Why now, do you need a bad guy? <laughs> In the end, the talks collapsed. The war continued on for two more years until the Rhodesian strategic fuel reserve was blown up by insurgents and the government was forced to the table. Kissinger and his supporters would later claim that the eventual peace was negotiated on the terms laid out during Kissinger's negotiations. That's kind of questionable. Sure. It's probably it is fair to say that the sh that by coming in very strongly, and he was very unequivocal about condemning the government of Rhodesia by doing this as the Secretary of State. Kissinger caused a shift that led to a significant increase in trust of the U.S. by black African nations. Um, no wonder by, Reagan by, was so pissed nations, off. You know? Yeah, obviously. So it's, <laughs> it's one of his better moves from an ethical standpoint. But it's um, an ego move still, right? It, it, uh, yeah. Everything is an ego yeah, move. Right. And obviously, it, it's an it's a a sign of how much more fucked up things become that doing this broadly good thing causes the beginning of the end of his career in politics. Um, oh. Of course. It's and like, we're gonna you can't, help, can't help the black people. That's it. You're done. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's it for you, Kissy. But to be fair, it worked for me. That's why I did it. We know, Henry, <laughs> but we know, buddy. Uh, but you know what won't <laughs> fail to bring peace to Rhodesia? What's that? The sponsors of this podcast oh. who orchestrated the destruction of the Rhodesian Strategic Fuel My Reserve. God. Mm -hmm. That that is we are sponsored entirely Heroes. by by the Rhodesian rebel forces. Um here's an ad. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Countless crazy tournaments you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Constantly changing challenges like money sprees or treasure hunts that keep it fresh with new wild minigames. 
Timed events offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums, delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches, unique playing pieces, and so much more. The verdict is in with Monopoly Go. There's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now for free on the App Store and Google Play. Bean Dad. The Dress. 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in The Jinx. Now the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Ah, we're back. Good stuff. Yes. So, yeah, on the whole, Kissinger's last year or so as Secretary of State involved his least number of war crimes per month, which might point to personal growth, but probably points to the fact that he and Nixon had just exhausted the U.S. government's ability to do shady shit. We needed a breather, right? We had to take a breather. It took us a few years to get geared up for Reagan, you know? Sad. He's like, he's been... Go ahead, Dave. We've just killed so many. There's like no... Mm -hmm. Like, what, do we, we, dig up, we dig them up and kill them again? Like, it's just mm-hmm. hard. <laughs> we, we're out of ammunition. He's like, a, he's no longer a starting QB. He's being mm-hmm. traded. He's riding the pine. Yeah, he's got like, he, yeah, he got a wrist injury, you know? Yeah he's, yeah, he's on IR for the year. Yeah. So the last one of his escapades we're going to cover then is Kissinger's relationship with the Kurds. Mm. Oh, fuck. Mm. 
Yeah, baby! Jesus fucking Christ. The Kurdish people are the largest ethnic group on Earth without a nation of their own. They make up large chunks of southern Turkey, southern Iran, northern Iraq, and northeast Syria. Now, if you look at this kind of broad Kurdistan region on a map, you'll notice a couple things. For one, it's all landlocked, which means if, if you were, and there was a lot of talk when, like, colonial powers left, started to leave the Middle East after World War II that, like, should, and, and promises were, in fact, made to the Kurds. Um, one of the issues that comes up is that it's going to cause, like, it, severe economic difficulties because they would be landlocked. Mm -hmm. um, you'll also note that their territories all tend to exist in chunks of states that have wound up fighting each other repeatedly over the last half century or so, right? On Turkey purpose. and Syria, Iran, and exactly. And the Kurds were used on purpose by basically everyone as buffer zones and proxy fighters in these conflicts. Now, starting in the Nixon administration, the Shah of Iran had a problem. He was engaged in an escalating conflict with a new sexy young dude on the block, Saddam Hussein of Iraq. Now, can I just say uh, right away, I like both these guys. They seem like they're both going to go good places. <laughs> 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 so the Shah decides he wants to arm, uh, he wants the U.S. to arm Kurdish fighters in order to give Saddam some trouble and ease up pressure. Um, the ostensible leader of the Kurdish people's struggle in Iraq at this time is a guy named Mustafa Barzani. Now, Mustafa had been leading his people in battle against the Iraqi state prior to Saddam taking power for like a decade at this point. And he had repeatedly begged the United States for aid. The U.S. traditionally did not like Barzani because he had spent a decade exiled in the Soviet Union and had some socialist E tendencies. But the Israelis and the Shah had experienced great luck in using the Kurds to keep Saddam, who'd taken power pretty recently, off of their back. Kurdish rebels tied up 80% of the Iraqi military during the 1967 war against Israel and are probably a big part of the reason why Iraq did not join in that war. In April of 1972, Saddam signed a treaty of friendship with the Soviet Union. This finally tipped things for the Nixon administration. Treaty of friendship is just a great term. I mean, it's it is a like, nice term. We're like buds! I, yeah, it's like We're when bros. I signed my BFF when I was seven at a treehouse. <laughs> yeah. Hey, uh, can you sign my bro contract? Yeah. yeah. It means we're bros forever. It comes with AK-47s. Uh, we yeah. are signing the BFF treaty. So this finally tips things for the Nixon administration, and Kissinger gives the go-ahead for CIA Director Richard Helms to express American sympathy with the Kurds and declare our, quote, readiness to consider their requests for, assist for assistance. Next, from a write-up in Foreign Policy. In early 1974, Saddam violated the terms of the March Accord and unilaterally imposed a watered-down version of autonomy for the Kurds. Barzani responded by traveling to Iran, where he met with the Shah and the CIA's station chief to request U.S. backing for a plan to set up an Arab-Kurdish government that would claim to be the sole legitimate government of Iraq. As Kissinger wrote in his 1999 memoir, Years of Renewal, Barzani's request triggered a flood of communications among U.S. officials focused on two questions, whether the United States would support a unilateral declaration of autonomy and what level of support the United States was willing to give the Kurds. The CIA in particular warned against increasing U.S. assistance. But Kissinger was dismissive of CIA Director William Colby's caution, writing, quote, Colby's resistance was as unrealistic as Barzani's enthusiasm. Nixon ultimately decided to increase, CIA, uh, to increase U.S. assistance to the Kurds, including the provision of 900,000 pounds of Soviet-made weapons that the CIA had stockpiled and a $1 million lump sum of refugee assistance. In April of 1974, Kissinger oh, sent— Can I—why mm -hmm. 
why the Soviet weapons? Is that to well, confuse things? You don't want people seeing them with U.S. weapons. That's going to make it seem like we're involved. Dave. What an amazing, <laughs> what an amazing it's move! So fucking, mm-hmm. I mean, <laughs> it's dope. It's I stole very a car funny. to commit a murder. Yeah. <laughs> so, in April of 1974, Kiss- Kissinger sent Nixon's orders to the U.S. ambassador in Tehran. This cable was important because it laid out a succinct proclamation of U.S. interests vis-a-vis the Kurds. The objectives, he wrote, were to A, give the Kurds capacity to maintain a reasonable base for negotiating recognition of rights by Baghdad government, B, to keep present Iraqi government tied down, but C, not to divide Iraq permanently because an independent Kurdish area would not be economically viable, and U.S. and Iran have no interest in closing the door on good relations with Iraq under moderate leadership. <laughs> yeah, but there, there are... are... I mean, I'm I'm not crazy, but there are landlocked countries that are yes, economically and, viable. It, and Kurdistan crazy, has a huge amount of oil. Yeah, it's such a crazy thing that they're saying. Like it's just, it's fucking insane. What they are doing, and what Kissinger is establishing in writing here, is U.S. policy towards Kurdish people for more than half a century. And the idea comes down to we will provide them with aid and weapons when they fight our enemies, but only to such an extent that they achieve minor tactical successes, never enough to allow them permanent autonomy, because that's going to upset the balance of power, right? This has been ever since this is what we do with the Kurds, right? And Kissinger is the guy who lays it out first. Now, Mustafa Barzani made the terrible mistake of believing that the U.S. actually supported his people's independence. For three years, the Kurds battled Saddam, sustaining thousands of casualties. But then, in 1975, the Shah and Saddam made peace, and the Shah asked the CIA to cut off all aid to the Kurds as part of a deal with Iraq. The weapons Kurdish fighters had relied upon suddenly dried up. Barzani's fighters were massacred. Thousands fled to Iran but were turned away by the Shah. Desperate, Mustafa cabled Kissinger, whom he had gratefully sent three rugs and a gold and pearl necklace's wedding gifts just months earlier. Your Excellency, the United States has a moral and political responsibility to our people. Kissinger never replied. Later that year, the House Intelligence Committee asked him to justify this betrayal. He responded, covert actions should not be confused with missionary work. Oh my god! Well, it's so cool. I, like, you don't understand that sometimes I'm also just doing missionary stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> the key is as that I st- don't give a shit. <laughs> as he stands naked on his rug with just his pearl necklace on. <laughs> yeah. uh, speaking of missionary. So, in the 1976 presidential elections, Ronald Reagan attempted to primary Gerald Ford from the right. The Reagan campaign targeted Kissinger heavily, not for his numerous war crimes, but because of the fact that he had made a detente with the Soviet Union, right? That's why they're uh, in. Because it's amazing it's to, like, this, to be like, mm-hmm. you know what? The right's actually got a point. He committed war crimes in Vietnam. I mean, you're talking about a guy who's killed millions of innocent people. Uh, no, that's actually not, uh, that's, uh, we're actually no. fine with all that. It's the peace stuff we're pissed <laughs> at. We're a little uh, angry right. at some of this peace stuff he's been locking in. They are, specifically, they're livid that, like, part of the detente means Kissinger was like, we're not going to fuck with Soviet spheres of influence in Eastern Europe. And right. Reagan and his colleagues are like, well, this means they're just giving up Eastern Europe to communism. You of know? course. Um, right? Always like, communism. It, exactly. Always. Um, it's fascist hate communists. I mean, yeah. uh, God. And, 
And Kissinger's political instincts and charm were sufficient to fend off an attempt, because there's within the Ford administration, there is an attempt to get Ford to promise to fire him in a second term, largely because right. they think it'll help him win the primary against Reagan. Right. And Nixon beats everyone here. He manages to get Ford to be like, no, I would never fire Henry Kissinger. <laughs> Nixon <But> this does? <laughs> Uh, no, 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 not Nixon. Kissinger succeeds oh. in doing that with Ford. Oh, okay, sorry. Um, I thought like but, I was like, if you're listening yeah, to Nixon sorry, at this point, <laughs> there's a lot of Nixon in here. You know, you mix it he's up just, sometimes. He's, in a he's just in a cupboard in the White House still. Yeah. <laughs> Gerald, get me some gin. Also, keep Hank around. So. <laughs> The fact that Henry wins the fight within the Ford administration means that he becomes like a major marketing term for the Reagan campaign, right? Like they do not stop. Sh in fact, they, they institute right. a plank in the Republican Party that year that's basically the anti-Kissinger plank that says like, I you will never accept that like communist states should exist anywhere. Essentially, that's kind of what they do. Okay. It's um, just stabbing him in the heart. Yeah, it is. It's amazing. Um. And it's a it's a it's a mark of like how much he fucked things up that you can't even feel good about his downfall because he's replaced yeah. by people who just suck even more. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um. So Ronnie felt the spheres of influence that Kissinger had established with the Soviet Union were yeah giving up the Eastern like bloc to communism. He also attacked Kissinger for negotiating with Panama's new government because Henry was willing to give the Panama Canal back to the Panamanian people. But I mean, they, have, they have no yeah, right to the Panama issue, right? Canal. But yeah, oh my God. why would the they right get it? Wing was, the right not, wing was yeah. so, and Reagan wrote that thing, but they were yeah. so fucking yeah. mad Come about on, it. Come on, no, there's no claim, no claim to that canal. Yeah, Reagan said in a speech, we built it, we paid for it, and we're going to keep it. Oh um, my God. Refer to our two-parter on the U.S. and Panama for, oh. for more on that one. So Reagan's primary attempt failed, but by struggling against the rising far right, Kissinger had hammered the final nail into his political career's coffin. In the Ford administration's last days, a dark alliance materialized, and smelling blood in the water, they acted to cut Kissinger off from any future career in Republican politics. The three main members of this alliance were Paul Wolfowitz from the CIA, Vice President uh. Dick Cheney, and Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld. Yeah. Oh, my God! Oh, baby! Yeah! It's like there's four Kissingers. It's like <laughs> killing Satan and then three winged demons fly out of him. Yeah. Like, no, no! It's so funny. It is so funny. Um, Finally, God, some it's good really guys. funny. Um, and in fact, so uh, uh, Kissinger has, Kissinger, like Rumsfeld, he sees as almost like an, a protege. Like he and Rumsfeld are very close. And uh. when Rumsfeld turns against him, Kissinger describes him as, quote, the rottenest person I've known in government, which is uh, I mean, uh, Henry from you, utterly meaningless. Honestly. Like, absolutely totally. meaningless from you. I mean, you're not 100%. allowed to. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's so funny. It's so funny. So it's not funny for the all the people who are going to die, but it's kind of it's funny in like an existential sense. Like if you're if you're an alien looking at all this like a TV show, it's pretty funny. Yeah, you'd be like, yeah. well, you why, don't, why don't they yeah. get a good guy? You're like, well, it's really hard <laughs> yeah. to explain, but they just don't. If you can't laugh at all the people dying, are you an American? Yeah, no. The answer is no. By the way, the first time that uh, Nixon heard that Kissinger was working with a guy named Rumsfeld, he was like, well, pour him in a glass for me. Get some ice on it. <laughs> Sounds fucking delicious. Put some celery in it. Mm -hmm. So Rumsfeld and Cheney worked within the White House. Oh, my God. Kissinger. I can't believe I got to hear their names. I know. I know, baby. I know. 
<laughs> while Wolfowitz is part of the CIA's Team B. Now, Team B is an intelligence review board set up by Gerald Ford as a sop to the far right. The Reagan conservatives, who he's, again, trying to win over and get behind him so he can win the election against Carter, the Reagan conservatives were certain the agency had been, the CIA, I mean, had been underreporting Soviet military power because the Soviet military in, like, the early chunk of, of the Ford administration is like, they're actually not doing great. Like, they're, like we, we really don't need to keep buying a shitload of weapons. Like, they're not, they, they're not, they don't have the kind of military assets that we've been saying for years. Um, so and this, we now are getting a shady CIA inside of well, the shady CIA. Yes, this is like this. It's like a, a Russian nesting doll of right. the CIA inside <laughs> the CIA. Hey, it that's even worse Russian than the other doll. CIA. <laughs> so the Reagan conservatives were certain that the the CIA had been underreporting Soviet military power, and Team B like was basically Ford gave them Team B so that they could get new appraisals that showed that the Soviet Union was actually increasing their military assets. So basically essence, what we, yeah. like, what, like, I mean, essentially like what would eventually happen with Iraq, where you're like, look, I'm not liking the, uh, un, un, like, the non-distilled information. Give me a yeah. bunch of bullshit. That's exactly what's happening. And, and one of the things that's fascinating here is that, in essence, this is a return of missile gap logic, right? right. Which Kissinger oh, helped get off the ground. But yeah. now, because he supports this detente policy, and that's like his big claim to like fame within you know his his career that he reached detente with the Soviet Union, he's on the opposite side right. of like a missile gap bullshit myth, right? Oh man, like, this is that the moment leopards, for him. Leopards, leopards ate my face. Yeah, <laughs> I never thought it could happen him. to me. Yeah. And then they came for the Kissingers, and there was yeah. no Kissingers left <laughs> I mean, to speak for me. It's the same thing as, like, Dick Cheney speaking out against the Trump administration and watching right. his yes. daughter get slandered no, and, and stuff. And, 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 it's like, what, and it's what it's going to be in 20 yeah. years when, you know, Trump yeah. is welcomed at a president's funeral, and we're going, yeah. you right. know, Trump really wasn't that bad. I like the way he said we shouldn't nuke everyone on Earth, as yeah. opposed to the next guy who nuked everyone on Earth. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah. Jill Biden handed him a piece of peppermint candy. Andy. He's not that yeah. bad. <laughs> so former CIA analyst Melvin Goodwin later said of Team B, quote, they wanted to toughen up the agency's estimates. Cheney wanted to drive the CIA so far to the right that it would never say no to the generals. Not Jeez how estimates work. And again, this is the up yeah. like they're estimates. Yeah. Pause this and listen to our episodes on the Dulles brothers and then it's realize right. that Cheney's like, I want them further right than that like, that's not I mean, nearly right wing enough no that is the craziest fucking thing i've heard yet bug fuck it's like yeah. someone in a gangbang being like i want more orifices <laughs> not enough holes here i can't stick my dick in enough stuff so in december of 1976 as the ford administration prepared pre prepared to hand over power to jimmy carter the cia finished and released a 55 page report Greg Grandin describes this as, quote, the right's answer to the Pentagon Papers, a nearly perfect negation of the document Daniel Ellsberg had leaked three years earlier. The scholars and policymakers who composed the Pentagon Papers represented the kind of men Kissinger disdained, experts enthralled to facts. In contrast, the members of Team B were admitted ideologues. Its members, as J. Peter Skoblik notes, saw the Soviet threat not as an empirical problem, but as a matter of faith. Ugh, what kind? I mean, you just, it's a church. It's a, and it's, it's a war it's, church. Yeah. It's also what's happening here, because this they are against Kissinger, but as Grandin notes, 
they're using the kind of logic yes, he yes, used, right? He's, yes. He yeah. Is. He's not. He's. They're with him on all of the yeah. murder, crazy American shit, but they're like, he's just not racist. They're, I mean, they're basically like, we got to get rid of Kissinger so we can worship his p- tactics properly. That's exactly what's going on here. And in Kissinger's shadow, Gra- Grandin continues, quote, Previewing what would become known as Dick Cheney's 1% doctrine, Team B interpreted threats with the smallest probability of occurring as likely to occur. Absence of proof of Russian superiority was taken as as proof of superiority. Team B's failure to find a Soviet non-acoustic anti-submarine system was evidence that there could well be one. Noted right. by someone with the flags. Yeah, which makes sense. There, of course. I mean, it would be... Yeah. How could you not? Look, there is no evidence that I have EGOTed and, and, you know, won an Emmy and an Oscar and a, and yeah. a, and a Grammy. So that that's pretty solid evidence that you I, in fact, have. You have all of them. Yeah, you yeah. just yeah, need absolutely. to understand you have all of them. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So in December of 1977, the New York Times published a front page story on the intelligence findings of Team B, oh, which provided legitimacy to the bogus estimates oh and ensured God. the next decade of defense spending was geared towards stopping a rising Soviet titan that did not exist. Oh my you know? Jesus God. fucking Christ. Thanks, and New York Times. S- Nailed and it on that one. Star Wars on top of that, which is a Well, yeah, Star Wars Lula, proceeds directly from creation. Yeah. Yeah, and it proceeds directly, like, Team B is laying the groundwork for Star Wars, Uh, right? So, uh, while Team B's uh, tactics ran directly counter to Kissinger's current positions, they rested directly on what Grandin calls his philosophy of history. Henry had been an advocate on the value of intuition in assessing threats and guiding responses. Historian Anna Hessen-Kahn writes that they used Kissinger's own philosophy to, quote, belittle, besmirch, and tarnish Henry Kissinger. Had to be a tough spot for Kissinger where he was like, it's a shame that I've been vilified, but goddamn do I love the way they did it. <laughs> so it's me, just, so me. Everything we, everything, that's, that's why when people, uh, you know, you, you look at the current situation in, in Russia and, and everyone's like, we got to get rid of them. And I'm always like, just, but just remember whenever the U.S. gets what it wants, it's always worse. Yeah. Every so, time. That it can be worse. Like he can be gone. He's a fucking monster. But don't be surprised if yeah. what comes after is really fucking bad. And the idea of not questioning shit. Like we are the country who cried war. At some point, you have to be like, look, bl- sorry, everybody. You're really gonna need to step up with a lot of evidence because mm-hmm. you you constantly just fucking invention. I mean, if you have, if you are forming organizations inside of bullshit organizations meant to bring, like, the, if there's no submarines, it means there are submarines. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just kind of like, I, and the fact that it's still effective, it's uh, constantly effective. It's never, it's never yeah. stopped. It, 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 this is just a continuation. And it's even like, th- this is a domestic version of what we, what happens everywhere else. We just create more and more worse things yeah <laughs> internally yeah. externally it's what we do don't worry we'll make it worse yeah That's, that is that is the promise that the united states makes itself in the world don't worry the don't life- worry we can fuck this up more yeah the lifeguard has we, weights to throw on you yeah i mean we fucking created putin if you go back and look at it like we we're yeah. behind all that shit yeah it's us like it's looking us. at the le- at the bombing of kiev and going you know what'll fix this if Bangladesh doesn't get COVID nineteen vaccines, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right, <laughs> yeah, which at some uh, point is going to be what, like we will at some point solve something just totally on accident, like yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so 
When he left office in 1977, Henry Kissinger uh. would never return to direct political power. Um, he desperately wants to. Uh. He really so wanted to. So like, since then, he has always wanted to. Yeah. That's nice. Uh, that, now, now I understand 2016. Yeah, he, he really wanted it to happen, but he never quite made it, ma- pulled it off. Um, he eventually started a consulting firm, which he would rapidly grow into an eight to ten million dollar a year business for oh, himself. Christ! Um, he makes a ton of money doing this shit. Of course, and, he goes into consulting. Like, oh, absolutely! A consultant's job is to give yeah. the worst advice. Yeah, and That's to make people do. feel good, and mm-hmm. he's great at that. I'm a shit yeah. oracle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, Walter Isaacson, uh, author of the biography Kissinger, claims that Henry was actually much more ethical in this period of his life than most former government officials who start consulting businesses. Mm. Um, Come on. He waited an unusually long time to start his business. He avoided for years directly connecting his clients to people he'd worked with in the State Department. What like, a low bar. It, it may be accurate that he is more ethical in his conduct here than most people, but again, that's a low ass bar. Yeah. yeah. Um, most of his business, the, bu- the business he does in this period, can be boiled down to like he's helping oil and gas and other extractive industries make oh, deals. Oh, so he's with like doing nice philanthropical okay. stuff. Yeah. No, yeah. yeah so he, he's just destroying the world. Well, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> He's a middleman for the people destroying the world. Let's uh, let's let's be clear about it. Yeah. You know, he's 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 making he's he's making connections between people who are willing to kill the And to, to be fair, planet. he's pining to be in charge of it again. He is. <laughs> um, probably his most morally questionable moment in, like, I guess, a conventional sense is that. Uh, so, like, right after the Tiananmen Square crackdown, he shows up on Peter Jennings' show oh um, to argue that, like. Whatever went on, the U.S. should not impose any economic consequences on China. And this is, again, not due to a principled stand against sanctions. It's because Kissinger was working on a massive business deal that involved the Chinese government and several large corporations. <laughs> <laughs> and here's the thing. He's he's working as a journalist at that point. Oh, my God. He is God. a regular columnist oh for the God. L.A. Times and the Washington oh Post. God. And he advocates fuck? in both magazines not putting any kind of economic, uh, like, like doing any economic harm to China over this, which is oh. like a ethical issue as a journalist because <laughs> Again, he does not disclose that he has any of these business relationships, and it causes a minor uproar. Um, It's one of those things where it's like, yeah, that's unethical behavior, but also in Kissinger terms, like, not even on the fucking radar, right? (laughs) To most people, this is an abhorrent Uh, act, but congratulations on turning over a new leaf, Henry. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, Henry, you've really improved. You really are less shit. You waited until after the thing to do something bad. Yeah. So... In his post-power years, he became even more of an international celebrity. He's actually surprised when he, st- when he starts doing this job. He's raking, racking up huge amounts of money as, like, a public speaker. And he and his, his like, accountant expect the value of him as a speaker. They're like, well, it's obviously it's going to decline over time. People right? will learn that you're good. horrible. It just gets bigger. He just becomes uh. more and more valuable as a public speaker. Now... For some insight into his life uh, in what we might call retirement, I found a New York Magazine article from 2006. Quote, he bonds with Oprah Winfrey over their shared love of dogs. She recommended an artist to paint a portrait of Kissinger's lab. And with Alex Rodriguez over their shared love of the Yankees, he and A-Rod had lunch at the Four Seasons last year. He and his wife of 32 years, Nancy McGinnis, spend every Christmas with close friends Oscar and Annette de la Renta in the Dominican Republic. Asked about the nature of that friendship, given the unlikely connection between a former statesman and a fashion mogul, Kissinger says, they are dear friends of mine. They have no utility. I'm going to try to kill them. (laughs) Yeah. 
<laughs> I will kill them at My some point. My plan's to kill them soon. Can we just, can we finally agree that Oprah Winfrey is a fucking monster? Yeah, I mean, right? Oprah buddies with Henry K. Winfrey? Yes. I mean, yeah. Dr. Phil, yes. Dr. Oz, like, yes. she creates... I, I, I'm not going to stick terrible. around for any Dr. Oz shit talk, but the other ones you got me on. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> don't forget, Gareth, don't forget John of God. Yeah, r right yeah. under your Suharto tattoo, Gareth, is, is just <laughs> Dr. Oz high-fiving Henry Kissinger. Now, to be honest, this is before he got his show, so I liked him early. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this was just this was just like aspirational, you know? Yeah, I didn't know. He's, he's a great pal. So Kissinger became a New York socialite and was reputed to enjoy the city's social scene because, quote, Manhattan's social life is more generous than Washington's political life. He should it's not, not be allowed sport. to pick where he wants to go out. I mean, he but should no! have to, like, get food raised to his cell in a bucket. It's the same thing as that, what, the cook? Was it David Cook, the one that just died? But it was the same thing. Yeah. Everyone just accepted him in those fucking circles. And it's like, no, yeah. he's a fucking well, monster. And then Charles mm -hmm. Cook is the one who's like, you know, was like on a rehabilitation tour for like six months yeah and yeah. and you and you know major news outlets are reporting like look he recognizes they fucked up a little it's like he no, feels you, bad yeah, it's he like, feels no, you, bad i don't give a fuck yeah degenitalize <laughs> him so Kissinger yes. was regularly and i think probably still is regularly seen on the arm of Bar barbara walters who calls him a loyal friend and in oh, fact, Christ. she was hanging out with henry and his wife one night at a dinner party when kissinger endured one of his few public shamings it oh. came courtesy uh, as the real, the only real hero of these episodes, ABC News anchor Peter Jennings, who sees Kissinger at a restaurant and is fucking enraged and really? screams out, how does it feel to be a war criminal, Henry? Nice. Oh, yes! <laughs> Peter Jennings, baby! Yes! Of course, <laughs> and of course, Peter Jennings is gone, so no longer yeah, he do we he get dies. that. Yeah, he dies. Kissinger probably, like, invaded his lungs. Yeah. That Cast should happen every restaurant yeah. every, he goes into. And to all these fucking anywhere. people. Yeah, every, Jennings is basically the only person at Kissinger's imagine, social level who calls him out. And ever. imagine, and I mean, he was, a, he was a nightly news anchor on a yeah. major network. Imagine if you had that sort of vitriol pointed at some of these people that we have in present day who are, again, not only allowed to walk around, but are still in spheres mm. of power. Mm -hmm. but, but Dick, like we were saying about Dick Cheney, like... You know, George W. Bush should not, he should not be in public. He should not be releasing right. thoughts on Russian yeah. invasion. No, he certainly shouldn't be fucking painting. Yeah, he shouldn't he be shouldn't fucking painting. He shouldn't be paying. getting mints. He shouldn't no. have fingers. No. <sighs> His so daughter for, should not be on the fucking Today Show like, I don't know. I like strawberry not. in my margarita. <laughs> so I want to continue the story because we're not done with the story of Peter Jennings like calling Kissinger out at a restaurant. And to finish that tale, I'm going to quote from the New York Magazine again. The subject of Kissinger's past sins was very much in the air at the time. Judges in both France and Spain were seeking Kissinger for questioning as the long simmering debate over his connection to Chilean general Augusto Pinochet's brutal killing of dissidents in the 70s returned with a vengeance, not least in Christopher Hitchens' right ringing indictment, the trial of Henry Kissinger. These developments clearly rattled Kissinger, who had preemptively written a lengthy article for Foreign Affairs, decrying the dangerous legal precedent of using universal jurisdiction to try state actors for past actions. <laughs> the same precedent under which German courts hoped to try Donald Rumsfeld. 
Uh, the question, the, and the question by Peter Jennings, how does it feel to be a war criminal, stunned the dinner guests, who included Time Inc. editor Henry Grunwald, who also what? died last year. And yeah, and former ABC chairman Thomas Murphy. Grunwald no. told Jennings the comment was unsuitable. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's unsu- really an unsuitable a- thing to say. Was it yeah. as unsuitable as fucking bombing Cambodia? Like, mm-hmm. Jesus fucking Christ. This is the yeah. thing. Manners. They care about mm-hmm. manners. Yeah. They don't care about all the fucking yeah. bodies. And, and to to his credit, when, like, Grunwald is like, Peter, that's really unsuitable. Peter's like, I don't give a shit. He's a fucking war uh, criminal. Fu-. He doesn't say that exactly. Peter but Jennings. he says the emotional equivalent of that. Ah, uh, it's such a um, bummer. Barbara Walters later said of the moment, I tried to change the subject, but it was a very uncomfortable moment. Nancy, Let's talk about Kissinger's Cambodia. Wife, reacted very strongly and hurt. Kissinger said nothing. Man, so, it, nothing. it really is like you know it. The, you see this a lot when like protesters will go into events, yeah. and they will you know they'll have a message, they'll have signs, they'll have something yeah. orchestrated set up, and not only will the politician and the people on the politicians dais sort of be like okay okay but the people at the event will be the ones who are like you know i don't like a congressional here this isn't the time or place this isn't the time it's like mm-hmm. what there's no time or fucking place yeah, when the, you, where's the fucking time I mean, and place you, you, what what do you fucking expect it's all we have at this point is that's the only yeah. thing you can really do is try to yeah. make them hate living in the world they're ruining yeah yes. it is a fucking mark of how fucked up any kind of accountability to the political classes in our society that the most consequence Henry Kissinger ever faces is Peter Jennings yelling at him once yeah, at a dinner party. a man who's been yeah. dead for 20 years, 15 yeah. years. I mean, when Sarah Huckabee Sanders was out to dinner and some people yelled at her, I mean, you saw both sides oh, yeah. condemning it. Some fucking dudes and, yell at fucking Tucker Carlson from yeah, his lawn and, and, peop- and it gets and called there are, terrorism. There are, there are Republicans and Democrats who always condemn that sort of stuff. And it's not because people mm-hmm. believe in public decorum. It's because they don't want it to show up on their fucking doorsteps. Right, right. Yeah, they, they don't want like that shit to come back on them. Yes. And, I'm sure if someone's going to point out Peter Jennings did something fucked up, he must have. He was in media he for a very 9/11. long time. He did 9-11. Oh, right. He did 9-11. That was Peter Jennings. He yeah. flew those planes right into those towers. Yes. I'd forgotten right. about that, Gary. Thank you. Yeah. That's how he died. That's, That's right. how he died. Yeah. <laughs> um, but at, the, at fucking least, he was there and, and didn't mince words. Just yeah. like, you're a war criminal. Not like... How does it feel to be here where American boys are dying? But like, no, no, you did war crimes, Henry Kissinger. Fuck yeah. you. Someone has to say it. Um, in his many decades worth of declining years, Henry, Henry has focused his remaining powers in an attempt to secure his legacy. In 2003, he opened up his White House archives to a British historian named Niall Ferguson, whose book, also just titled Kissinger, I've cited a few times in these episodes. Ferguson claimed his biography would, quote, provide a warts and all look at the man. But quotes he made about the relationship put the lie to that. And this is Ferguson, like, writing about how jazzed he is to be hanging out with Henry. I'm in Henry Kissinger's swimming pool talking about his meetings with Mao Zedong, thinking, I must be dreaming. Shit in that pool. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Fucking hell, Niall. Everyone. Now, obviously, I have quoted from this biography because of the details, the information Kissinger provides about his early life. It is not without value. It's probably the most detailed look at his childhood we have. It also only goes up to 1968, which neatly avoids the most controversial moments of Kissinger's <laughs> life, right? I mean, yeah. that, that's not great. <laughs> Even and when now, journal, and now, yeah. and now we end the story. Yeah. Thank yeah. You. <laughs> and that was the end of Henry Kissinger. <laughs> blah, blah, blah. 
Even when journalists and historians that Henry hasn't authorized specifically interview him, uh, they are likely to find themselves enraptured or at least tripped up by his clever wordplay. Bob Woodward, who first interviewed Kissinger in 74, wrote, He wants to control not just what he says, but people's perceptions of what he says. And it's kind of like one long book review where he is arguing with the reviewer of his book or his life or his policy. Seymour Hirsch was more blunt in 1983 when he wrote, he lies like most people breathe. Wow. Now, oh, yeah. the most comprehensive biography of Henry Kissinger, and the one I would, if you're looking, if you're looking for just a book on Kissinger's influence in like the U.S. and how toxic it was, I recommend Kissinger's Shadow by Grandin. If you want an actual biography of Kissinger's whole life and time and power, I recommend Walter Isaacson's 1992 book Kissinger. I actually think Isaacson is too fair to Henry Kissinger, but even so, even though he clearly like does not wholly condemn the man, I find the book utterly damning, right? Like the book condemns him even, even if Isaacson doesn't even when entirely you're not trying do so. to fully condemn yeah. such a piece of shit. You it's have it's no choice just impossible not to, to yeah. if you're accurate. Right. And he, I think yeah, Isaacson you, is pretty accurate. If you lay yeah. out the facts, that's it. Yeah. Now, the best thing I can say about Isaacson's book, Kissinger, is that Henry Kissinger himself complained endlessly about it. He whined to Isaacson's boss, Henry Grunwald, who defended Isaacson and said he felt the book was balanced and down the middle. Kissinger responded, what right does that young man have to be balanced and down the middle about me? Ugh, I mean... Wow. Uh, uh, <laughs> wow. It, 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 just, it just shows you, I mean, yeah. It, yeah, like... He should never be in the position where he should be pointing out that other people are crazy. No, no. Fuck, like, you don't get to say that, Henry. Yeah. No, now, ever. As New York Magazine notes, Kissinger denies that exchange ever happened. Um, oh, I quote, believe Henry. I mean, the guy doesn't <laughs> yeah. lie. He seems like an honest man. Yeah. I bet Nixon <laughs> still had him wiretapped. And here, here's a quote from that article that's very funny. I've never read the Isaacson book, he says, then quickly clarifies. I've read a few parts of the Isaacson book, which I didn't like, but I understand that there are many parts of the book that are very positive. I missed those, he that, says with a sly smile. Uh, that is so, that is so Trumpy. I know, it really is, yeah, right? Yeah. I didn't, Isaacson, I didn't yeah. read it. I read parts one through 510. Yeah. <laughs> Isaacson says Kissinger wrote him a series of letters contesting numerous passages. <laughs> my view, and this is Isaacson, my view is that if Kissinger reread his own memoirs, he would be outraged that they did not treat him favorably enough. Wow. Kissinger. <laughs> Who wrote this? You did. Yeah. Oh, oh. oh, fuck. That son of a bitch. I'm gonna get me. <laughs> Kissinger claims to be unconcerned about his place in history. I cannot affect my legacy, he says. And what does he think his legacy is? I have no view, he says. I can't control it by what I say. I tell him I don't believe him. You're not in your 80s yet, he replies. <sighs> now, a lot has been made about Kissinger's purported role in like the invasion of Iraq. He did apparently like urge Bush and Cheney to go through with it. I think crediting him with specifically with having an impact on that is not realistic because uh, this is Bush and Cheney. By the time they talked to Kissinger about this, they had made up their fucking You know, lives. it's probably... He didn't yeah. push them into invading Iraq, It's you know? like similar when, like, the Queens yeah. of the Stone Age have Dave Grohl on drums. Yeah. You're yeah, like, exactly. He's a player exactly. for sure, but he's not writing all the songs. I mean, Josh Hawley's yeah. got this. Kissinger's definitely the the Dave Grohl of the of the Bush administration. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Great drummer. Um, 
And I, I think that inst- rather than like actually being a meaningful role in arranging consent for the invasion of Iraq, I think Kissinger was doing here what he always did. He was sucking up to powerful people to tell them by mm-hmm. telling them what they wanted to hear. And the best example of this comes from 2008, when during a presidential debate, both John McCain and Barack Obama cited Kissinger as supporting their positions towards Iran. Both men held opposite views of what the U.S. should do in regards to that country. <laughs> um, so my... Like, you might expect, like, and I, I don't think either of them is lying. I think they're both, because I think Kissinger just would be like, yeah, of course, that's the right call. That's Absolutely. So, yeah. what, what would the start date be, just so I can put it in my calendar? <laughs> Good call, guys. That's great. You're both right. Yeah, we should invade them and leave mm-hmm. them alone. Yeah. So, um, yeah, as a young law student at Yale, Hillary Clinton had taken part in outraged protests against Kissinger's bombing of Cambodia. As Secretary of State, she praised the astute observations he shared with her and wrote in a review of one of his books, Kissinger is a Friend. And again, the astute observations are Kissinger saying whatever she wanted to do was the right thing to do, right? right. Like, that's... That's what that's why these people like like him and think he's astute. He's not. I think he does today get kind of like looked at as this secret power pulling the strings. I think instead he's just like the ultimate kiss ass. He's just like, yeah. oh, you're in power now. Yeah. Whatever you want to do is the is the good thing to do. Absolutely. Right. You know? I, yeah. A hundred percent. I, I yeah. always I, I would tell people like if you're if you're young and you don't understand what it means to see Hillary Clinton standing there with with Kissinger. Mm-hmm. It's no different than in in ten years if all of a sudden your Democrat candidate is standing next to Cheney. Yeah, you're like, what the fuck is going on? And I guarantee you that lost her. A bunch of people didn't vote for her because they saw her standing next to Kissinger. Yeah, I'm I guarantee. I guarantee. Yeah. It. And um, yeah, I, I think though when you're trying to talk about like his actual influence and like the fucked up things that have been happening in the last couple of decades, it's less in whatever advice he was giving politician A or B, and it's more in the way he shaped the way the U.S. government functions in terms of foreign policy. He centralized power and set the precedent of allowing the executive branch to execute military actions without consent of anyone outside the White House, and obviously. There were like things that were done to restrict the power of the executive branch from doing that. But then those things were all undone after the like, right? Like it's this Mm -hmm. it's this kind of tug of war thing. Um, But Kissinger, even though he did not set, obviously, the policy after 9-11 that expanded the executive government's ability to to do military shit abroad, he did set the precedent of like how you would actually centralize power in that way within the executive and he made a, he he set a lot of ideological and philosophical trends that are still shaping the way the U.S. government functions in regards to foreign policy today. Sure. Yeah. And if, if you're looking for perhaps the most direct and succinct explanation for how Kissinger influenced the world of modern American politics, you can find it in this quote he himself wrote in 1963. There are two kinds of realists, those who manipulate facts and those who create them. The West wow. requires nothing so much as men able to create their own reality. Wow. Wow. What a fucking... <laughs> wow. To not, to not be able to define realists in your, two def- definite, your two-tier definition <laughs> yeah, of realism is absolutely delusional. <laughs> yeah, for neither of your definitions of realists to involve like, people like who care about that, material like, reality. I, yeah, yeah, I heard you say in the first one, I was like, oh, and the second one's going to be realists. It's like, no, <laughs> yeah. no, 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 no. Neither one is realists. <laughs> nope. So that's Henry Kissinger. It's it's so unbelievable. And to what you like, you know, he really he his legacy, like you're sort of saying, is not just directly connected to the things he's connected to because there was no 
um, prosecution for what Nixon did. No. And there's no prosecution for what Reagan did. And there's no prosecution because we never prosecute and we never actually hold any of these people accountable. You know, you do see the seeds of that flourish now. Like you can invade. I mean, we're at the point where most people don't even know we've invaded countries we've invaded. Like, yeah. at least with Vietnam, people had access to seeing it and being disgusted by it. And then under Bush, it was like, well, we're not going to show the coffins returning. And you see, I mean, it's not just Republicans. You see it under Democratic presidents, yeah. too. It just is kind of more egregious at times under Republican presidents. But, you know, it's it's every president gets more powerful, does more. And it does kind of boil down to they're going to be evil. Journalists and media need to recognize what their fucking jobs are. If you're in some of these jobs, like it's it should not be a popularity contest for access only. There should be you should be beholden to doing good and and making these people held accountable because it's so relevant in what you're talking about with Kissinger that they just let the access to him because he became a popular figure completely blind them as to what was mm -hmm. actually going on. Well, it's well, actually yeah. worse than not punishing them. Remember when, when Obama was elected, everyone was like, these guys have to be tried for war crimes. Yeah. And he said, let, we got to move on. And you know, that we're talking about torture and war crimes and everything else. So, but it went, it went further than that because they gave Bush like the medal of freedom. I mean, there's a picture of, Fucking Biden hanging on his chest. And they also they also honored this guy named Henry Kissinger. Mm -hmm. The they Obama sure administration they sure did. honored him. So it's beyond not doing anything. Yeah. It's well, it's not even just it's them. not even just him. I mean, it's just it's systemic. It's just. Yeah. And you know what? If you are if you are one of these people, if you are a fucking anchor at CNN, like if you're Jim Acosta. Think of how fucking popular you would be if you did just start using your access to just be yeah. like Peter Jennings. Like, be we are like craving, Jennings here. We are craving this fucking figure. But mm -hmm. they would be immediately fired. I mean, but yeah, they would, would never also, get to talk to but, these guys but again. they would be. But you would also, I mean, having even a moment of that would carry your career. Like, if we had that Peter Jennings shit now. It would go so viral and people would talk about that person endlessly that I mean, it's like it's like when, you know, when billionaires started competing over being philanthropists, you know, you at some point you're so far in the other direction that yeah. you're not that far off from just doing the thing that. Is you're supposed to do is going to be such a radical move. It's this. It, it's very frustrating. Like right now, you have all of these big media figures like moving their shows to Ukraine to be able to film shelling <laughs> in the distance. And yeah. like obviously, to be a journalist covering combat up close, covering war crimes up close, requires a lot of of physical courage. Those like Sky News reporters who got fucking shot and shit. The, yep. the Daily Beast reporters who got fucking shot. That, but like being a, like Lester Holt, like having your show filmed with like shelling in the distance 
they have massive security teams. They have massive resources invested into making sure they are in as little danger as they can possibly be. And more than anything, they are out there and doing it for the fucking clout because yeah. that that is easy to like. Pills like I'm brave. What's actually brave is Peter Jennings yelling at yeah. Henry Kissinger at a fucking dinner party full of powerful people and making yep. sure that for just a second he has a moment of accountability. And if one of them was willing to do fucking that to any of these ghouls, I would have a lot more respect than I would of them filming Shelling and Kiev from a mile and a half away. Yeah, yeah look, there there was uh, Wolf Blitzer who, during the first Gulf War, put on a helmet and was uh, in Saudi Arabia where Scud <laughs> missiles were flying. And it's saying how in danger he was. At the same time, there were journalists, American journalists, yeah. in the fucking Baghdad hotel being being shot at yeah. and rocketed by American troops. Yeah. And those guys didn't work anymore. Mm -hmm. And Wolf Blitzer got his own TV show on CNN. Or Brian Williams yeah. when he talked to, when he was like the way that he embellished his his story about like getting off of a helicopter and taking RPG fire. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. I mean, I it, don't know. It, we could use yeah. another Jennings or two, at least in this regard. Yeah. I mean, it's it's hard because it's like, what would you I mean, what would like you're like, we want like a we want a politician for the people. And it's mm -hmm. like, I like that's like that's what you wish for. But you're like the step first is to just have these people vilified for the things they should be vilified for. Yeah. It, it would be nice if there was a journalist. That's the end of the thought. <laughs> well, um, honestly, like th this was—I mean, just oh. fucking incredible and just yeah. such a um, ridiculous He's the worst dig. American. He's a pretty bad one, right? I don't think—I yeah. don't think there's a worse American. I think he pick. is the worst. Is mm -hmm. he? Is he? I know that there was talk of like into the countries of like trying him outside of you know not having him there. Yeah, yeah, but can he travel anywhere he wants, or is yeah, he restricted? Yeah. He can't. I, I, I'm not aware of. I mean, there may be like well, one place that he, he doesn't also go, now like he's become like this watery figure. So he's kind of like the T1000, where if you just get close yeah. to him, he turns into silver goo and just can go through a drain or something. <laughs> yeah, you can't put a handcuff yeah. around a pile of watery goo. I mean, he's he is a big part. Like he he argues vociferously for why like. Rumsfeld shouldn't be able to be charged, and I think Germany it is, but and he's doing it like selfishly again. Then, shocking, then it would yeah. put Kissinger in danger, right? Like you know, he's not I mean, doing it's... it out of loyalty to Rummy, who he probably hates at this point. Although I don't know that Kissinger can take things personally, actually. So maybe like I don't know. Like, <laughs> he's you know? almost he's like the Bill Walsh coaching tree of war mm -hmm. criminals. Yeah. I don't like, know what that means. Well, Bill Walsh like coached the 49ers and invented the West Coast offense, and you just mm -hmm. see the ripple effect through the NFL for generations and decades. Yeah, it changed football. It just changed everything, and it's like, that's yeah. what he did. He just was the guy who was like, you know, I came up with a new offense, and it's like, everyone's just reading off of that playbook and tweaking it. Yeah. That's He's a, the that's that a guy sports you said reference, Robert, FYI. Uh, Robert, football <laughs> is uh, when... Uh, uh, okay, Robert, that's, that, it's that's like... The, that's the title of this episode. I really, I really liked... The, I liked, the that guy Gareth said of, but of football, I, I, but of I, politics. I liked the two yes that preceded your, I don't know who that guy yeah, is. Yeah, no, I have no yeah. idea. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey, who is that? that? Yeah. 
It's like um, it's, now, it's like in basketball when Phil Jackson made uh, the triangle, triangle offense. Bingo, <laughs> that's somebody. Yeah, triangle diplomacy. It's like the triangle thing. Yeah, yes, absolutely. There we like, go. Yeah, yeah. Robert's uh, like, all right, all right, a triangle. <laughs> yeah, okay. And offense is the opposite of defense, right? That's yeah, that's right. That's what there everyone says. That's, that's right. what everyone says. Yeah. In my opinion, it definitely is. You yeah. know, the team with the most points wins. Yeah. Well, for sure. That's going to be <laughs> yeah. critical. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, you know, when the overtime gets a first down, that's really, that's, that's exactly. causing a problem. Don't finish you know? it. You've nailed it already. No, you absolutely. Three-pointer. Uh, absolutely. Uh, that's right. 100%. A three-point touchdown for Robert. Mm-hmm. Let's go, Globetrotters. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, honestly, fun. thank you for allowing us to uh, enter your dojo and uh, mess around for a little while. I don't, yeah. I don't know if thank you is the right I think Probably. <laughs> I, I thank you not. for listening to me read 31,000 words about Henry oh Kissinger. My God. <laughs> oh, because we talked about it and I was like, I can't do it because it's not one episode. It's so yeah. many episodes. Yeah. This is like the minimum I think uh, yeah, you can it, responsibly uh, yeah. cover Henry Kissinger. Like we could have done another couple episodes. Hey, but... hey let's do it. <laughs> you know what? Do it. Gareth, yes. Let's just riff a couple. <laughs> yeah. We'll get a couple of photos of him hanging out with Jill St. John, joke about his hog. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Let's take it on the road. We can get another 40 minutes of content out of that. (laughs) Honestly, we could just keep redoing parts of this on the road for a year and a half. The dollop and behind the bastards present three guys going through shots of Henry Kissinger at fancy parties and talking about the shape of his dick under his pants. Honestly, honestly, Mm -hmm. it should work. Looks like he was having a chub day today. What do you think, Dave? (laughs) Well, I'll tell you what, the walnuts on the table aren't the only one I'm focused on. Look at those tennis shorts. This is how we make our millions. Uh, Well, genuinely, thank you. I I am generally super scared. Having Mm -hmm. having watched how Colin Powell was treated. Oh, yes. When he died, uh, be scared of how people are going to react to Kissinger's death. Yeah, because uh, yeah. you're gonna watch liberals be like, he was fucking awesome, and you're yeah. just like, everything about him was bad. Yeah, yeah. W. It'll be fun. Any uh, pl- pluggables at the end here? Sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Listen. Absolutely. Um, well, first of all, we've got the Kissinger. Uh, we should do Kissinger live, and we should use the mm-hmm. Kiss font. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we should also wear like the Kiss makeup, and we should just do Kissinger. <laughs> um, yeah. We uh, we will be in Australia and uh, America, the best country on earth. Uh, mm-hmm. We'll be in Australia in the middle of April to May. Uh, you can go to dollopodcast.com for all that information. We're all over the place. And then uh, I am uh, doing stand-up in Australia and also uh, over the summer. So you can go to garethreynolds.com for all that information. And you can follow us uh, on social medias with our... Uh, at, I'm at Reynolds Gareth. Dave's at Dave underscore Anthony on Instagram. I'm at Reynolds Gareth on Twitter. Dave's at Dave Anthony on Twitter. And, um, whoo! Woo! <laughs> All right. Thank you for That's having it. us again. Motherfuckers. Sophie and Robert. Yeah. Everyone go pray for Henry Kissinger's painful demise. Uh-huh. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, let's have let's all hope that Tim Ka- Tim Allen takes him out somehow. <laughs> he smuggle he smuggles coke into a party Kissinger's oh. at, and it just blows out the old man's art. <laughs> or he just starts doing war improvement with Kissinger yeah. as his character. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, Kissinger Ooh. would be the you know the the owl. He's the owl. Right, like, right, 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 right. No, you got to bomb Cambodia, Tim. <laughs> all right, there's a good. 
that's a note there. Hi, everybody. Robert Evans here, and my novel, After the Revolution, is available for pre-order now from akpress.org. Now, if you go to akpress.org, you can find After the Revolution. Just Google akpress.org, After the Revolution. You'll find a list of participating indie bookstores selling my book. And if you pre-order now from either of these independent bookstores or from AK Press, you'll get a custom signed copy of the book, which I think is pretty cool. You can also pre-order it in physical or in Kindle form from Amazon or pretty much wherever books are sold. So please Google AK Press after the revolution um, or find an indie bookstore in your area and pre-order it. You'll get a signed copy and you'll make me very happy. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in The Jinx. Now the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Claim comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.